Welcome to Tucson New Thought. Something happened to me that I was not expecting in singing this song just now. Um, And I'm trying to consider how I want to frame it and how it fits into the message of the day because I don't know that it does, but clearly something has welled up to be expressed. And so I'm just going to say this, that when I got to that lyric, in a city of strangers, I've got a family of friends, I was really, like, it really hit me today. Um, I mean, I grew up in Tucson, but I've, when I left in 1997 to go pursue my dreams, um, the first place I went to was New York City. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, boy, uh, well, what I will say about living in New York City is I lived there at the right time of my life to live there. Because it was, you know, I was in my 20s and I was enthusiastic and I was going to go be a big, big Broadway star. And I've talked about this in the past and I, you know, I flailed and things didn't go the way I would like them to go. And I got into a toxic relationship and all of this stuff happened. And it's because I didn't really understand that notion. You know, I lived in a city of strangers. I mean, there was one person, two people that I, three how many people did I actually know who were living in New York at the time? Because um, Carrie Mon was living in Brooklyn at the time with her husband, and our friend Max was living uh, in Brooklyn. <laughs> I think, wasn't Max living in Manhattan? Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I found myself feeling very separated from that because I lived in Manhattan, and if you don't know the geography of of New York, Manhattan is an island, and Brooklyn is over there, part of Long Island, which a lot of people don't realize, but it is. And so there was a lot of separation. I mean, I had to be on a train for 45 minutes to get to see Carrie where she lived. Um, <clears throat> and so I started to make my way through the city of strangers, and I developed that family of friends. And I've always felt very grateful for that. Um, And this song is actually very present for me as a memory of that time because the work of John Bacchino, who wrote this song, uh, was sung in all the cabarets all over town. And I was talking to Christy yesterday when we were rehearsing this, saying that I used to go to this club. (laughs) It was the best, wasn't it? This piano bar called 88s down in the West Village at uh, 4th Street and 10th Street if you can figure out that geography. Um, (laughs) 4th Street and 10th Street actually intersect, and streets should not intersect other streets. Look at a map, it's weird. Anyway, so I used to go to this club all the time, and I developed really a core of wonderful friendships there. And they have stuck with me to this day. I'm still in touch with a number of those people. Um, and while I was there, saw the demise of that particular club. It shut down while I was there. Now here, now you're ready for this? Can I tell them? <laughs> so we're talking about this. I said, well, you know, Christy lived in New York. Did you ever know of 88? She said, I did a show there. <laughs> so we have common history. Yeah. 
But to this day, and this is how it all ties in, I live in deep gratitude for those relationships in my life and the ones that preceded that and the ones that have come after that because they all mean something to me very deeply. And I really work, I work to express kindness always. Does it always work out? Sometimes I get angry. Nobody ever wants to hear that the minister gets, gets angry. But you know what? We still have our human experiences, and it's okay. Usually when I get angry, I say, okay, I see what's going on here, and I will remove myself. But what this speaks to for me is this idea that as we are wrapping up our month of Thanksgiving, gratitude is a way of life. And that's really what I want to leave this month with to really, for each and every one of us, to more deeply embody the notion that gratitude is a way of life. It is not an activity. It is a consciousness. And when we are consciously living gratitude, it becomes the game changer. And the activity of gratitude, I talked about it a little bit last week, literally changes the physical structure of our brain. And when we change the physical structure of our brain in support of that habitual understanding and notion that gratitude is at the core of it all, then we actually find ourselves attracting into our experience more to be grateful for. So I live in gratitude. I am duly blessed and truly thankful. Of course, there are no mistakes. Because here's the question that kind of came up for me today, and it is this. Can we be grateful for the dark spaces in our mind? I heard that. <laughs> I heard, sure. And the answer is yes. And in fact, we must be. It is imperative that we find that path of gratitude for the dark spaces in our mind. It seems antithetical to the New Thought philosophy because, you know, we are perceived, those of us who are engaged in this philosophy, as being a little Pollyanna. Oh, they're all so happy all the time, aren't they? You ever hear that? Gosh, you people are so happy. What is wrong with you? <laughs> I do believe that it is imperative that we find our way to this form of thanks living to actually be grateful for those dark spaces in our mind because they are part of our experience. They are part of our unique expression. And it is okay. If we don't honor the shadow, how can we revere the light? If we don't honor the shadow, how do we revere the light? Those dark spaces in our mind, they are reflected in our world in some way, whether we are aware of it or not. And a lot of it is below the level of awareness. These dark spaces show up in various ways as despair, hardship, challenge, strife, which I'm sure nobody here ever feels, <laughs> ever. The more you look at them, the more you honor those things, the more you recognize them for what they are, you can live in gratitude for the lessons that they teach. And as you express and experience that energy of gratitude, you know what happens? The effects of those dark spaces dissipates in your life. It doesn't mean that the dark spaces have completely been eradicated from your mind, although they might have been, but their effect no longer has a grip on you. That's the practice. That's the practice. 
I honor the dark spaces in my life, in my mind. They are not requirements for living unless we continue to make them requirements. And I did that for a long time as well. This is a challenging song because of some of the lyrics for me. I love, well, actually I won't say that I love the song. I like the song. We had a lot of discussion yesterday around the song too. Um, it's it's, it's it, like the melody I think is lovely and the lyrics are lovely and I don't think that they quite coincide in a way that feels comfortable for me and so I'm now being critical of the song I just sang to you. You're welcome. <laughs> But I'm challenged by some of the lyrics too, and I actually purposefully left out a verse because I was so challenged by the lyrics. I'm not, I'm, I'm not even gonna tell you what that is because uh, you can go listen to a recording of it somewhere else and you'll probably understand. But I left this lyric in because of this notion that we must honor the dark spaces. The lyric I left in, in a world that can bring pain, we can still take each chance, right? Exactly what she's talking about today. For I believe that whatever the terrain, our feet can learn to dance. And there we are. We're going to go back to having a dance party. <laughs> In considering those dark spaces, Donna Michael, who is a brilliant music minister in Nashville, once said this, and I have carried this with me as a core understanding in my life. She said, I have often found that when we are ready to move past something once and for all, it fights like hell to stay in our experience and maintain its hold over us. It's the last gasp of a dying fear. And I know I've used that before, but I think it bears repeating. I have often found that when we are ready to move past something once and for all, it fights like hell to stay in our experience and maintain its hold over us. It's the last gasp of a dying fear. One of the last gasps of a dying fear that I have experienced in my life is my own internalized homophobia, which people sometimes are surprised by because I identify as a gay man, but I have homophobia. What? How is that possible? <laughs> Actually, I think it's imperative that we all look at the ways that we are self-defeating because of the hate that we have for some aspect of ourselves, whatever it is. I went and saw, and, and I'm going to get back to that, but I went and saw a play last night that brought this to the surface for me while I was watching the play. Um, the University of Arizona, their theater department, of which I am an alum. <laughs> uh, the show closes today, is doing a play called The Last Night of Ballyhoo. Anyone know it? Anyone? All right. So in The Last Night of Ballyhoo, it takes place in 1939 in Atlanta, Georgia, and it is a prominent, wealthy Jewish family in Atlanta in 1939, and what was happening in 1939 in Europe? Does anyone remember? <laughs> does anyone know? I won't say, does anyone remember? Does anyone know what was happening in 1939? <laughs> it was the rise of the Third Reich, and you know Hitler had just invaded Poland, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism that was happening very, very violently and publicly in Europe at the time. And so there's this world of experience happening around this family and 
what is illuminated through this production, through the play, is that this family actually is engaging in anti-Semitism as a Jewish family because they are German Jews as opposed to the Eastern Jews. And it really brought to mind my own thought of how much homophobia I carry with me because that is a, that is a demographic in which I identify. What comes up are issues of the perception of assimilation. There's tacit self-loathing that is expressed through the relationships within this particular family. And it is all brought to a head when a Russian Jew from New York comes into the household and upsets the cart of what they perceive to be their flow of life. And I think what the message of the whole play is and the message that I carry with me is this. It is important that we find the courage to acknowledge and celebrate every aspect of ourselves and do so in a way that does not root itself in any form of self-loathing. It is time to let go of any self-loathing. And celebrate. So I ask you, where are the places? Rhetorical. <laughs> Actually, I don't think anybody's going to want to answer this out loud. So I trust you would know that, that it was a rhetorical question. What are the places within yourself that you are hiding out of a need to be accepted by everything out there? Because that's where that comes into play. I rooted myself in a deep-seated homophobia because I wanted to be accepted in a particular way. This was also challenged for me by going back to my alma mater in that department in a theater that I have worked in many times and remembering what it was like in the 90s to be a gay man in the theater world, which you would think, oh, well, aren't they all? No. <laughs> but... But the, but, but the industry was still very homophobic in its expression. This has changed a lot in the last, can you believe it, almost 30 years. <laughs> Come January, 1990 will be 30 years ago. I know, right? <laughs> so there was so much homophobia and within my department and among my peers that I took on for myself. And so I learned how to hide. I learned how to hide so that I could get along in a particular community. And so the question becomes, in what ways are you hiding? What are you hiding for the purposes of assimilating and getting along that maybe is not in alignment with the truth of your being? Self-loathing can have a real grip. I don't know that I have the answer. <laughs> Wait, you don't have the answer? I thought you were the minister with all the wisdom. But here's, here's what I know. Asking the question is the place where a conscious shift begins. If we have a willingness to live in the question, I say this all the time, in what way can we live in the question? and trust that what is flowing through us at any given moment is the answer that is required in service to our mo most magnificent flow, 
how do we move forward from that, with that? As I watched the play, I found myself reflecting on those ways that I hated myself and the ways that my self-loathing still creeps into my own life. I've worked really hard in my life to remove, now that I have awareness, for the things that I do have awareness around, how to remove that tacit homophobia that I express. And it still comes up because there are still things below my level of awareness that come into play in my experience and expression of life. And as, I, as they show up in my experience, that's the clue to what is happening in my mind. And as I see them in my experience, that clue helps me step into the question, how do I change? How do I evolve? I think many of us are looking to be accepted, to be in the fold, right? And I do question, is that in our best interest? Is being in the fold in our best interest? Rita Mae Brown said, I think the reward for conformity is that everyone likes you except yourself. <laughs> Isn't that good? Emerson says, imitation is suicide. Conformity is death. <coughs> Ernest Holmes was most inspired by Thomas Troward and the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson. It is said that Ernest Holmes read the essays of Emerson, and most specifically the essay on self-reliance, and he read it all the time. It was like drinking water to him. If you've never read it, read it, ingest it, reread it, reread it, reread it. <coughs> so my work today, what I choose to do here publicly in front of you, is to change the fold. To be myself in a world where everyone wants me to be something else. I must find that path to thanks living in the fold. And my understanding of the fold is shifting. Uh, I see an acronym. Yes. So what is the fold? What is the fold? <sighs> Faith, oneness, love, diversity. Faith in oneness requires love in diversity. That's how I've come to deepen my understanding of what it is to be in the fold. I am redefining the fold for myself, loving a diversity of opinions, loving diversity in our relationships, loving diversity in self-knowledge, loving the diversity that exists in our own minds. As we come to a deeper space of love in diversity, we find that faith in oneness. To be rooted in oneness is to remember who you are. And it means you have to love it all. Even the, <laughs> the dark spaces. So the question essentially I want to leave you with today is this. In what way will you find more love in diversity in your life?
this is your question for contemplation for the week. In what way will you find more love in diversity in your life, both outwardly expressed and inwardly understood? It's a question I can't answer for you. But live in the question and allow yourself to live in the work. That's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to find a way to love myself a little bit more. The light and the dark, all of it. That's my choice, and I invite you to make that choice for yourself. Namaste. Thank you for listening. Visit TucsonNewThought.org for updates on everything that's happening at the center. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Tucson New Thought. Namaste.